Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Our guest today is Marine Corps veteran Aaron Rodriguez. Aaron was assigned to Marine Wing Support Squadron 371 out of Yuma, Arizona during the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. While moving supplies near the city of Nazaria, his unit was ambushed with heavy enemy fire. Shortly after the ambush took place, they realized a Marine, Sergeant Fernando Padilla Ramirez, was missing and had been captured. Aaron speaks about his frustration with their commander deciding not to go recover Sergeant Padilla and the toll it took on his unit. Eventually, Sergeant Padilla's remains were recovered by 22 Fox Company, part of the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit at the time. If you enjoyed this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out to us on Instagram at Urban Valor TV or you can email us at team at UrbanValor.com. Enjoy the show. My name is Aaron Rodriguez. I served in the Marine Corps from 2001 to 2005. I got out as a corporal. Uh, what jobs did you sign up to do? I was, uh, I was actually open contract. Oh, were you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, needs of the Marine Corps ended up putting me as an MP. So, okay. And I didn't find that out until MCT. I'm uh, from Mesa, Arizona. Um, grew up there. Uh, went to high school out there pretty much. One of the few natives, I'm told, of Arizona, everything like that. So... Just there, uh, just played sports, things like that. Wasn't, you know, didn't really have a close family. Anything, uh, anything significant happened in your childhood that impacted your life in any which way? Some of the, the, the I guess, childhood or teenage violence that I experienced growing mm-hmm. up that kind of showed me that I don't want to go down that path, you know, uh, in and out of jail, things like that. You know, I saw that from my brother a lot. Uh, he was in and out of jail, arrested from anything from, you know, drinking underage to, man, he was actually got arrested for second degree murder. Oh, shit. You know, at one time. And, uh, so it just, yeah, didn't really, wasn't, didn't have very good role models to, you know, look up to growing up. I knew I wanted to be in the military and I actually got medically disqualified from, by the army first. Oh, really? I was, I was going back and forth between the two, you know. See if I could get a signing bonus or, you know, money for college and things like that, which the army was offering the Marine Corps, not so much mm. at that time. Uh, yeah, just money for college, just looking for direction. You know, um, I signed up in June 2001 and, uh, left out July 8th, 2001 for boot camp at Paris Island. And it was just, I was just, you know, just trying to find my place in the world, you know, and just looking for guidance and having that discipline and being a part of something to, to help me you know, further myself and be a better version of myself going forward into adulthood. So you were in boot camp during 9-11? Yes. What was that like? So this was the first time in my adulthood or adult life that I um, purposely pissed myself or willingly. (laughs) So uh, it was Paris Island. We were in, I think, field week. We were in field week and I was doing, uh, I was doing push-ups in a canal with like 10 other recruits. And we're just sitting there, you know, the water, you know, face down, coming back up, breathing and everything. And um, there was this kid, this other recruit that needed to go to the bathroom. I said, you know, sir, this recruit requests an emergency head call. And the DI is like, I don't hear no fucking sirens. So this kid's going, woo, woo, 
all the way to the head, right? <laughs> and um, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to do that. So I just pissed myself right there in the canal. I was like, uh, it's like, why not? I'm already soaking wet, right? So right. I just said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not making fire engine sounds to, to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> there was that. But what was it was very odd because the drill instructors weren't where they were spoke where, where they normally were, mm. and all of a sudden it was like half the DIs were there. And then they'd switch and then half more would come out. And they were just, they were going back and forth and we didn't know what was going on. And the whole day went by and it was like this really weird feeling like, why are they, it wasn't that they were being easier on us. It just wasn't as much. And that evening, the the evening of September 11th, um, our drill instructor came out and he was this short Southern guy. We called him Popeye because his forearms were just massive. And he could do pull-ups one-armed all day. Like, he was our god, you know. Like, that was our senior drill instructor. And he came out, and he goes, um, you know, with a southern accent. He goes, fuck me to tears, boys. We got sucker punched. Mm. That's what he said. And uh, he started explaining everything that happened. And um, it just it was just unfolding because we thought they were fucking with us again. Because our heavy comes out and goes... You guys are going to earn your college money now, and some of you are going to die. Wow. Like, straight up. Like, like we're going to war, and we're like, yeah, we heard this before. You know, trying to get us ready. And, you know, basically we thought it was another boot camp fuck-fuck game. Mm-hmm. You know, they are just trying to just, you know, mentally mess with us a little bit. And um, he started going through, the, like, this list, and he goes, how many of you guys are from New York? And five guys raised their hand. And I said, well, how many of you from the Manhattan area? And three of them raised their hand. I said, how many of your parents work in the world trade? Or family? And three of them raised their hand. I said, you three come with me now. Oh, wow. And two of them didn't return. Oh. So they were, I never saw those guys again. Really? Yeah, they were gone. I never saw them again. Like They, they packed up their, their foot lockers and were, were out of there. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing they probably got dropped to a different platoon to go home and, and deal with matters on that. Um, we had two other guys... Uh, that jumped up that didn't live like I think their parents lived outside of Manhattan but worked at the World Trade and they, they one guy uh, one kid raised his hand and he goes my parents work at the World Trade my parents work at the World Trade and he goes yeah I just got off the phone with your mom keep her the fuck away from me on family day that's what the guy said he's like I don't want to talk to her anymore and um, apparently she spazzed out on him or something and <laughs> and then the second kid so then they came back and they said the Pentagon got hit and one of our recruits who had a drooping lower lip, so they called him Recruit Blowjob, the DI did. Because <laughs> he always looked like he was ready to take in something. But uh, <clears throat> So he gets up and he goes, uh, sir, this recruit's father works at the, the Pentagon. He goes, yeah, I just talked to him. And you're going to pay for not telling us your dad's a full bird colonel. <laughs> yeah, they ran his ass until he puked in the, in the pit the next day. So... There was that real lax September 11th day. And then after September 12th, we fucking picked it up. Like it was like the recruits knew, like we were in line at that point in time. Like there was very little bickering and arguing. We all knew our role, what we had to do. I mean, like on laundry days and rack inspection, we were already ready to go. I mean, when that DI would hit the light after that, we were already online, ready to go to morning chow. And he just looked over at us and goes, that's it. That's all he had to do from then on. I mean, we were, it was just we knew it was go time. Like it was like we were at war and this was that. And then, um, 
I think our class, because we graduated in October, they canceled graduations from September 11th until the first week of October. So my platoon, which is hotel company at Paris Island, 2nd Battalion, we were the first graduation to happen post 9-11. And they were only allowing like one parent on base. Like it was very minimal, like who could get on base for graduations. And I mean, it was a quick graduation. Walked around, little speech, hand salute, done. That was it. Like uh-huh. it wasn't like a grand, you yeah. know, like the normal graduations. <laughs> it was very, very small. Mm. And they got us in and out of there. And that was it. Oh, after boot camp, I uh, went to um, schoolhouse. So MCT, at, mm. you know, Lejeune. And then went to the schoolhouse of Fort Leonard, Missouri for military police. And then uh, from there in January of 02, I got orders to MCAS Yuma, Arizona. My recruiter said, go see the world. And I got fucking stationed in my home state. <laughs> so, and then you, uh, and then you eventually did find yourself, uh, in Iraq during the invasion. Yeah. Right? So we, uh, about 10 months had passed. I think it was about September, October of 2002. We got word that about 10 MPs will be deploying our gunnery sergeant, uh, sergeant corporal and seven, you know, PFCs and lances little platoon going. Um, we were going to go deploy with what was called the AAOE, which is Advanced Arrival Unseen Element. And um, we were packing up to leave out December, January. So we had to do a bunch of field inspections of all of our gear and um, started getting put on standby in December. And I mean, we'd have morning formations every morning, whether to tell us we're going or not. Mm-hmm. And then about and then January 7th, we told we, we, we got put on lockdown. Basically, we were not allowed to leave base. And they said, we're, we're, we're leaving out tomorrow morning. So we got on buses to uh, at, at Yuma, drove to March Air Force Base, and we flew out from there directly. And it was from other units uh, from Pendleton and Miramar. Uh, refueled in Frankfurt, Germany, and hit Kuwait City International Airport, I think by January 9th, we were there. Wow. And, and that evening, uh, they, uh, the combat engineers were already setting up the hardback tents for uh to to bring in all the the troops the marines in from stateside and have us you know have tents set up mm. and so they were just doing two by two you know two by four framing and i mean they were on it like that wow i mean it was it was crazy how soon i mean hit the ground running now you have an interesting story about uh being in kuwait yeah regarding the air force man Talk. so there's there's a couple <laughs> things here so we um we arrived on the 9th and by the 11th we were kicked out of pretty much every thing that uh, that the Air Force ran. Okay, so where they put us at was like this big ass rock field in uh, Al Jaber Air Base, and that's where we were building up the hardback tents. And then they had this huge berm, and on the other side of the berm was the Air Force Base, the Chow Hall, all the dorms and everything like that. Well, the male Marines had been venturing over to the female Air Force dorms and causing some issues with the Air Force males. And uh, at that point in time, so by the eleventh, we were kicked out of all the female dorms. And uh, by the 12th, we weren't allowed to use their, uh, <laughs> their pool anymore. And by the 13th, we weren't allowed to go over that side of the berm anymore or use the chow hall. So, I mean, it took us, we, we wore out our welcome in about four days. Wow. And so, um, but then Marines kept getting in trouble from going over the berm. And we're like, why are you guys going over there? Why are you going over there? And we found out later um, during, cause, cause when we, before, you know, after we got back from Iraq and everything like that, the MPs were doing customs 
And we found some Air Force females that had about $15,000 in cash each. There was two of them. Oh, shit. And they tried to, were trying to hide it to get it back and come to find out after investigation and everything like that, they'd basically opened a brothel mm. for the Marines. The Air Force females did. Wow. And they were just charging them cash. And they tried to get it back through on customs at the end of whatever, and they got caught. Holy they got busted for it. Shit. Did any of the Marines get in trouble? I have no idea on that front. Like, wow. Yeah. So, like, like I, I don't know if the command knew or was getting wise to it. It was like, we need to separate this. But, yeah, they by, by day four or five, we were completely separated from the Air Force. Like, we, we weren't allowed over there at all. Wow. And there was, yeah, they were, they were not welcoming us, you know, on that. Yeah. And uh, so... Uh, after about the 13th, 14th, we got in, got to the armory and everything like that. And then the MPs had a separate mission. You know, we had to work with the Air Force. So we had to work with the SFs, the security forces with that. You know, working with the Air Force on that, we started having some little friction coming up. Um, I had one, one guy started complaining about stop, loss, stop, move in February that he wasn't going to get out of Kuwait until May. Now, their living conditions, I mean, I've seen college dorms worse than that. Like... These guys had their own racks, their own beds. We were sleeping on cots or the ground. They had, you know, a twin bed, bunk bed. They had an issue TV and DVD and VCR player. Like, they're set. They're not crossing over the border. And this guy's fucking complaining. They have a full-on chow hall. These fuckers got steak and lobster. Dude. Before the war started, it's like a, uh, I don't know, a pre-victory meal or something like that. And it's like, that's what you guys get? I got a fucking MRE with some... Jalapeno cheese, like that's my the that's, chow hall. Yeah, uh, there was no joke, man. I remember going up there and uh, just holding my tray out because usually I'm used to them just slopping whatever shit mm-hmm. they're serving that morning. Yeah, and they're like, "Well, what do you want?" I'm like, "What do you mean? What do I want?" I had a fucking sandwich. I want ball. whatever the fucks for breakfast. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, we got pancakes, we got omelets, we got you know, what do you want to make?" You want? I'm like, "What the fuck?" Just give me some watered down scrambled yeah. eggs, man. Like, it was <laughs> wild, man. Yeah. <clears throat> So uh, as soon as the, the U.S. military presence in Kuwait started building up, we started getting reports of attacks or, you know, guys driving by and shooting at American vehicles and things like that. So, you know, our awareness had to be heightened and we had to, you know, figure out, you know, enemy from friends and everything like that. So we have, you know, like I said, we were, we were traveling in buses to and from the airport to their camps and everything. And one time... We're coming out on the freeway, and then we're the last bus. I'm in the last bus. We're a trail vehicle. And four of the buses just turn off onto the exit, and we still keep going straight. And the whole time I'm screaming at the guy, follow those bus, follow those buses. Finally, I grabbed the wheel, and I had to pull it over, and I placed my rifle to the back of his head. And I told him, turn this fucking bus over right now. Obviously, he didn't, he didn't uh, understand me, but a barrel of the back of your head is pretty explanatory mm-hmm. at that point. I pulled him over, made him stop the bus. I put him at, I put him in a, as what we call the Iraqi fighting stance right here. That's the Iraqi fighting stance. So I had him grab him by the back, you know, thing, put his head down to the, the steering wheel. And I got my rifle in the back of his head telling him, you know, where are you going? Trying to get some type of answers because he was not following the rest of the buses. And so um, at that point, you know, I'm talking to my guy, Johnson, who's got a saw, who's at the rear of the bus. I'm asking him, you know. Situation report, we got any vehicles coming up, any suspected vehicles and everything is no, says. And then I uh, asked for the senior enlisted on the bus. And I started handing out mags. 
you know, tell your NCOs condition one, you port side, you starboard, everybody get your heads down, close, you know, cover the windows up, everything. And then I made that driver put it in reverse, back all the way up to that exit and get on that exit and go. Did you ever find out where he was going? No. I'm glad we didn't. That's Just, wild. I mean, I'm glad we didn't find out where we were going. I mean, that fucking ambush set up or something, man. Like, yeah. Just real stupid, man. Like, why aren't you following that? Like, where are you going? That's fucking wild. Yeah, but I mean, like, it, it just, I just started handing out fucking mags, man. Mm. I had seven fully loaded mags. Psh, like that. Like, wow. we need to arm up, man, and go. But I mean, like, this is the buildup. This is February. <clears throat> so our mission was going to be to support the Cobra helicopters while they supported the infantry. So we were going to make up these little makeshift fobs in the middle of the desert, Cobras come, land, refuel, rearm, go back out. And uh, so we started training for that. And the two ways that we trained for was a mobile FARP, which would be in a CH-46 carrying a fuel bladder. They would drop the fuel bladder, land the thing. We'd come out 360, and then they set up a, a dirty FARP right there to refuel. So that's what we were training for. We were told that we were just going to be in the rear that we were going to, the helicopters come land, infantry's a ways away, and that they would push, you know, we would basically leapfrog other FARPs. So this FARP would go set up, support the infantry and the helicopters, and then we'd leapfrog in front of them. And then I think on the 22nd, we got orders, it's time to pack up, we're going to start moving out. Um, we had a couple of gas, 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 you know, yeah. things happened. You know, uh, we, I remember some, <clears throat> some major came up, uh, because we call, because they were on the convoy going into Iraq, and we were on the on the outside of the border, and we call gas, 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 and everybody's you know ditches, you know, they put their mask on, everything up, and some officer comes up and is like, "Well, how come it wasn't called uh, the missile attack wasn't called first? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, well, if it's gas, doesn't there has to be a delivery mechanism? So I'm like, I'm a lance corporal. The fuck do I know? Somebody says gas. <laughs> I put the mask on. I don't know how it got here. Like, <laughs> who do you want from me, man? Like, I, like, like all of a sudden, I, I know exactly, you know, where it came from. Mm. You know, it came over the net. That's where it came from. And uh, so it's just little shit like that, you know. Um, those things coming off two, three times a day for those three, four days. You know, I, you're sleeping in your mop gear. You know how mop gear is, man. Yeah. That stuff is suffocating. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't breathe. It's just a sweat. And so we're, we're sitting in that, and then um, 23rd rolls around. Uh, we, we pack up, and we start moving out. Uh, I think we staged on the border the night of the 23rd, and the 24th we crossed over. Uh, set up in the desert somewhere uh, south of Nazaria, and then that sandstorm hit. Mm. And we couldn't move for probably about 36 hours the night of the 24th end of the day. And we just basically, we did a 360 with all of our, about 40 vehicles. We did a 360 and then put our command post in the center of that. And everybody's weapons were outboard. And we just, we sat like that for probably about 24 hours, mm. just waiting for it to clear up. Finally, the next morning it cleared up. And as we started getting into our, uh, our convoy order to get out of there, we start driving up and we start seeing just a bunch of Humvees shot to shit and covered in blood. A couple, you know, five tons, just, and we didn't recognize they, they, we didn't recognize the the vehicles because the symbols on them weren't marine units, so we you know they were army. And um, so we stage up the morning of the twenty sixth, 
we start coming up when we go get in our convoy line and we have our security briefing and we have our intel officer come out and tell us um, we're going to be going through a city uh, and in this city there's there, there was some heavy fighting a few days ago but now there's no known resistance okay pretty simple right they've been telling us the whole time that we're probably not going to see combat and that we're in the rear with the gear whatever and that we're not going to be you know probably not going to you know see very much and that we're going to be, you know, in, in a support element. So they said, we're going through the city. Uh, it's going to be a couple bridges. And then it's a straight shot to the airbase. I was like, okay, it sounded simple enough. Just a movement, convoy movement. So we get to the southern part of the city. And we come up on this, this bridge. And there are refugees and civilians covering this entire bridge. And they're marching south, and they got them stopped. And um, they asked uh, one of the security vehicles, I guess basically to provide cover, which was my vehicle, to escort half through at a time. So we took half those civilians, and because we didn't want them coming into our lines, you know, with all of our vehicles and zigzagging and everything, because um, they'll steal shit from you. They'll reach in your Humvees and grab it and run off. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll get into that later. But <laughs> it's just these kids, yeah, they'll do it. But these people are on foot. You know, They don't have any water, nothing. So we're trying to give them water and keep them to the side and coming through. Well, this is right at um, dusk. So the sun's starting to fall. And we get these people. It's probably about 100 people. And I'm just basically waiting to see which one of them's got a gun or something in the crowd or whatnot. So we get to the end of the convoy where we're at, and they just keep walking. Apparently, there were refugees from Baghdad. They'd walked over, you know, hundreds of miles or whatever, getting out of there. Um, so we turn around, we come back up, and the road curves, and then it, it curves to the left, and it goes up to the southern southern bridge. And uh, again, our intel briefing was no known resistance. That it, the city had been cleared, has been deemed secured, and everything like that. So as we come up, I come to the southern point of the bridge. And um, we're waiting there, and our officer, and this is this, I, I didn't overhear this conversation, but somebody had told me that did. Um, when we got up to that southern bridge a second time coming through, one of the uh, infantry officers come up and said, Who the fuck are you guys, and why are you here? So, well, we're supposed to punch through the city and go set up a FARP over here, which was, I think it was, they, um, all the FARPs were codenamed by baseball stadiums. So Three Rivers was to the west. We had to get to Fenway, which was Kalatsakar Air Base, to repair that. So we're like, oh, we got to go to here. And, he, and the guy goes, let me explain something to you. You guys get north of us, and anything happens, we're not coming for you. Our job is to secure this bridge and hold this bridge. We're the nearest infantry unit to you. And uh, they said, well, that's fine. Our orders are pushed through. And um, it was uh, an officer from 28 that... He nicknamed us the Rolling Retards. <laughs> yeah. Because we were a supply unit going through. And at, at, at this time, I didn't know what the city was called, but it was the city of Anazaria. And so this conversation takes place. And it's like, well, we got our orders to push through. So we get back in our vehicles, and there's still about 100 civilians on the bridge. And we start to push forward, and fire opens from across the river, the enemy starts opening up on the crowd. And then the mortars come, and then there's RPGs. And we get caught in a crossfire between 2-8 and one ten. 
110's dropping artillery on us, and 2-8's freaking firing on us. And the enemy's coming from the front. Mm. So um, I think what I found is a target. I side in, pull the trigger, bolt goes forward, round falls out the bottom on a 240. Fuck, clear it out, boom, boom, boom. Same thing, bolt forward, boom, fuck it, grab my M16. And I just started firing off that, off my M16 into, into where I, I thought the enemy's positions were. And um, we had mortars cut and dropped down and everything. And there was a, a PFC that got hit. And he was screaming, and I could hear him screaming. Um, it, it, he had gotten shot in the ass, or so we thought. And our, our uh, OIC was basically saying, hey, you need to be quiet, okay? You've been shot, you're shot in the ass, it's, you know, you're good. Kids started saying, I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs. And he started saying, my mom's going to be pissed, right? 18-year-old kid, right? Thought he got shot in the ass. But that, the, the ass wound or whatever the, was the exit wound. It actually hit him above the left hip, ricocheted off his spine, and exited out his right cheek. Mm. That's why he couldn't feel his legs. You know, that kid, a young, young, young man, I think he'd only been in the Marine Corps for like six months. Wow. He's sitting there fucking bleeding out in Nazaria, you know. And um, we, took an, we took over 30 casualties that night, whether wow. it was from friendly fire or from the enemy. Um, Lance Corporal Taub got hit in the face with some shrapnel. Uh, Staff Sergeant Carson, he was a critical. He got hit in the chest. And then, yeah, so that was two guys immediately. I mean, it, I believe that they said if battalion medical wasn't set up right across the street, like basically like in the field right over, those guys may not, may not have made it. Wow. So we're sitting there and um, <clears throat> pop-up flares start coming. You ever seen one of those? Mm -hmm. Some scary shit. Like, you start seeing like, what the fuck? <laughs> so this pop-up flares are coming. We exit all of our vehicles and we basically start digging in. In the night, it's like this berm that goes down and goes into this field. This field is like a trash field. It's like where they dump all their trash. And it was like that's where we we lived. Like it just smelled like a rotten trash. You know, that's it. Like that's where we we were at for two days. And uh, we had to dig in with the grunts then with two eight that night. We were in two fighting holes. And um, the next morning, uh, one of our fifty cows is missing. What the fuck happened to our 50 cal? And he goes, well, uh, and then one of the Lance Corporals, it was like, oh, I saw some, some guys take it off. I thought it was the MPs. Fucking Grunt stole our 50 cal. Oh, shit. <laughs> so they acquired our 50 cal. We, I don't think we ever got it back. Because mm. they were, yeah, they, they acquired it. They fucking went and set it up in their fighting hole. <laughs> gear adrift is a yeah. gear gift, yeah. man. Yeah, they, they, so we were down a 50 cal. I think we ended up getting it back in the end, but mm. it was just fucking hilarious that the next morning we wake up and our 50 cal's gone from one yeah. of the, the Humvees. Um, it, it wasn't the, the horde until it was the, the sun fully rose that we saw what was on the bridge, and it was just nothing but civilian dead bodies. Mm. And, I mean, it was from men, women, children all the way down scattered about and um the rough thing was is we couldn't move their bodies we couldn't get out to move their bodies so we had to run we had to go over them oh shit yeah so we yeah 
we we couldn't move their body, couldn't get up to move the bodies, and it was just, I mean, seven tons, tanks, everything, just just going over them. Like that was that. So you guys continue pushing forward. We had to pull back. That was so. This was the morning, of the twenty seventh. Um, apparently, there was still some resistance in Nazaria. Uh, so we pulled back. I don't know, a few miles from the southern bridge, and then they just lit that town up that night of the twenty seventh. Fucking artillery. I'm not. Sure. It probably was a couple cruise missiles or tomahawks in there somewhere, but they lit that town up. And we just sat back and watched, watched the fireworks go off. And then um, morning of the 28th, it had been finally established that we need to get to Kalutsakar, um Air Base because the runway was out. And that was going to be our first major fob was Kalutsakar Air Base. It was just south of Alkut, and it was directly east of Baghdad. So our mission was, was the same was, you know, the 26th. We got to get north, right? Because um, a lot of the infantry units, because we were the first supply unit, although the 28th, when we pushed, when we started to go through, we were the first supply unit to go through Nazaria. So uh, the RCTs that were up north in Alkut and Kalatsakar, they were cut off. They didn't have supplies. So they were, I think, down to like one MRE a day mm. and very little water. Um, so they had to reestablish the supply lines to get them resupplied because they're going to Baghdad soon. And so that was our mission on the, the morning of the 28th is that we had to get there. Now, it seemed like everybody was doing a movement on the 28th because they ended up putting us, um, it was on the 26th. It was just fart team Charlie that was trying to go through. It was like 40 vehicles from MWS 371. Then on the 28th, they had four units, second CSSB 371, triple R, which was rapid runway repair. And then they had uh, elements of 2-8 there, um, and, and then some of the LAVs and Amtraks to escort us through there. So we had triple what we had, plus uh, air cover. We had Cobras. So we had so much more than what we did on the 26th to push through. Mm. Um, so the 28th, we crossed the bridge, and uh, it's morning time. It's like 6, 7 a.m., and we were, we're getting, it's about a convoy of about 250 vehicles. So this thing stretches from, for four or five miles. And 371 is from, is the middle back half. So 371 and triple R are the middle back half. All right. And then the front half is, is CSSB, Combat Service Support Battalions, and I think some other FSSG sh- stuff for, uh, second MEB and things like that. And, um, so we punch it out. We start going. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, we get through Nazaria, just north on SR-7, and um, the front of the convoy ends up getting uh, hit with RPGs. I don't think any vehicles were damaged or anything like that. So they call in the, the Cobras, and two divisions of Cobras, so eight, eight Cobra helicopters total. Uh, one was covering the front, one was covering the rear. So they go in and they take care of this RPG team, blow it up, everything like that. At that point, when I heard on the radio, they told us we were turning around. So they basically said, you guys got hit, we're turning around. So we're in a hairpin turn. Half the convoys on the southbound, half the convoys in the northbound. So we're trying to turn around 
in a hairpin, 250 vehicles. Oh, shit. Okay? After we had just gotten ambushed. So during this whole thing, they make they come to the conclusion that it's going to take us a few more hours to turn it all around and go like that. So I don't know who it was, which officer. They said, um, well, we can either push through now and get to our objective, or we can go back through Nazaria at night. They decided to push north. So we turned around again. Okay. <clears throat> so we decided to turn around again. And, and this is about 3 or 4 p.m., I'm guessing. It's, it's late afternoon. So we turn around again. And then the Cobra helicopters say, we're out of fuel, guys. we got to go back to refuel. And the officer's like, no, you can't leave us. You need to be here watching, watching us. And... Uh, so they said, well, you know, we got, they got some fuel trucks down there. Helicopters land. We fuel, uh, refuel, rearm them, get them up going. Okay, we start pushing. All right. We test fire our weapons. You know, mine, I finally get mine to work. It finally works, right? That's the first time I ever fired a 240. Isn't that crazy? Ever fired a 240 <laughs> before. So I, I fired a 240 off. Everyone else is firing their stuff off, and, and we're hearing little brr, brr, brr everywhere, okay? Finally, sun sets. It's pitch black, dark. And we're getting going. And no fire, no fire, no ambush, no ambush. As soon as half the convoy gets through and the first fuel truck shows up, they hit us. And it's about four to five Iraqi positions, machine gun positions, plus small arms fire. And they're dug in. And this is coming from a building about 150 to 200 meters off the side of the road. Mm. And they're dug in at about 100 meters on, on, in, the, in the field in front of the building. So I engage... Right away, I see it. I'm coming from an angle. I see the LAVs firing. I side in, engage, start sending rounds into the building. And we're chucking along, chucking along. It's very, you know, we're hitting vehicles in front of us because we're just, you know, it, it's, there's no depth perception on the MVGs and you're constantly, you know, so I'm getting jerked around in the, in the turret, firing and everything like that. And then we come up and we paused. We stopped directly in the middle of it. And we're just, we're just trading rounds. Firing back and forth, and come to find out, one of our um, Humvees had ran out of gas. The staff NCO forgot to fuel it up mm. that morning, so they're basically unloading their Humvee into another vehicle and getting out of there. And while this is happening, we're taking more and more fire, and so we're engaging, engaging, and then it just it sporadically stops, and then boom, it just picks up again all at once. And for some reason, I looked up and I saw two flashing red lights and it was the Cobra helicopters and they're like 50 feet directly above me. Mm. And I got shit falling down on me from in there because they're, they're firing. Mm. I got stuff coming down on me and I just held the trigger and just started sweeping. And um, we get through that. Everything stops. I mean, that, that third story building was gone and they just they leveled it. And um, during this confusion and chaos, um, the Marine and the vehicle or two vehicles behind me crashed his vehicle. And some of the Marines inside were shot up. And um, so they, they got the people loaded up that were wounded and things like that. And then we moved on and didn't think anything more of it. Um, we got to, I think it was on Najif and we got another firefight up there, which was just South of Kalatsakar air base. And then we got to Kalatsakar air base or not cluster, I mean, we're south of there uh, in this field. And we park, 
and I, you know, I'm going over everything that just happened, making sure my weapon's up, good to go, you know, making sure, you know, not, there's no holes, you know, everything's working and functioning like it should. And uh, so my staff sergeant comes up and goes, we got a formation. I said, what the fuck we got a formation for? There's a Marine missing. I said, what? Let's go get him. What do you mean there's a Marine missing? What, 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 there's nothing to talk about. There's a Marine missing. They go, get that weapon up. Like, All right, staff sergeant. So I started doing that and, you know, making sure the weapons, and the fucking thing is still hot, dude. Like, and uh, he comes over again after the formation. And I said, what are we doing? He says, Marine missing. Let's go get him. He said, oh, they're sending F-18s to go look for him. I'm thinking, what the fuck's an F-18 going to do? And it was like, they weren't sending the F-18s to go look for him. They were sending F-18s to go blow up his truck. Mm. And so we started hearing, like, like, what is going on? Why aren't we, you know, on the move to go get this guy? And uh, our commanding officer, and I, I believe from who it was, it was Staff Sergeant Barilla, that they got into an argument on the field about going to go get him. And uh, so this big-ass argument's happening out in the middle of the field, and our commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Craven, says, no, we're not going back for him. Wow. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? We're not going back for him. I said, he cited further loss of life and gear. We had eight fucking LAVs, two divisions of Cobras, and about 200 Marines ready to go back and get him. Holy shit. And he shit. fucking told us to stand down. Fucking told us not to go back for him and stand down. And you could just tell all the leaders had fucking no clue what they were doing at this point. All the officers, except for one, our Lieutenant Orta was pretty fucking squared away. But everyone outranked him. So he, you know, he was just like, you know, a Lanza. I got to take all my orders from somebody else. And, uh, yeah, they told us not to go get him. Let's yeah. fucking stand down. And, uh, I'm pretty sure that, that there was, there was words said from, from some of the staff NCOs, everything. And, um, yeah, and they, they ordered the Cobra <coughs> helicopters to go back, I guess, and use some type of thermal to look for them. They couldn't find anything. And it's like, well, what, what are the Cobra helicopters going to do? This is, this is a mission that needs boots on the ground towards it. Like, you can't, you're not going to do anything from the air. And they kept just trying to put the situation off, trying to make it somebody else's problem. Because then I heard, I heard the F-18s were going to go look for them. Then I heard recon was going to go get them. Hmm. So Re- what that ended up happening? Who, who, who uh, did they ever find out what happened to the, who it was? At this point, do you know who's missing? No. Okay. More, like, like at that point, no. Yes, I did find out. His name was uh, Sergeant Fernando Padilla Ramirez. But at that point, you at didn't, that point, you guys, I didn't, I didn't, know, didn't know. Well, not you specifically, but did people yes, know who they, they knew, were looking they for? They knew who it was. Mm. They knew who it was. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, and they, but they did. They, they knew who exactly was missing and what gear was missing. Right. And because um, he, was, he was driving in a seven-ton that was fully loaded. And uh, something happened where they swerved and went off the road and, you know, mass confusion and chaos of war, but not having accountability. Yeah. I mean, we do that all the time. All present and or accounted for. All formations. Like, that's one of the mm-hmm. biggest fucking sticklers. Now you're going to tell me, because you're tired or you don't want to lose any more gear or life, that we're not, that, that no man left behind doesn't fucking apply to this scenario. 
what is no man left behind only for, you know, special forces or infantry? Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm. who does no man left behind apply to? Doesn't apply to the air wing? That's wild. You know, like the air wing, like, like. So when it, when it, when it ends up happening, you guys go get them or what? What's... No. <clears throat> Told to stand down. Um, supposedly some people did go drive back to get eyes on it. And they just said they just saw a burning vehicle. Um, but other than that, there was, there was no attempt made that, that evening or in the sub- subsequent days to go get them. Um, yeah, our early reports heard that he was taken alive that wow. night. Um, you know, and then through the, the, the rumor mill and things like that, they said that, uh, he was tied up to a vehicle and drugged to the town and, then put up on a cross for the display. No shit. Yeah. How did you guys find that out? Or how, how was that confirmed? Fucking rumors, man. We had, we had more shit. See, and that was the thing. Like, once we got to our, our main pause in Kalatsa car and they just put us out in fighting holes, they didn't share any information with us at all. Everything that we got was from other units. We had officers from other units, to, like, expressing their frustration with the situation. Like my buddy Jimmy was telling me one time that some officer came up to him and started fucking telling him, your, your CEO is a piece of shit. He left that Marine behind. Like things like that. So it was like, it was odd that we didn't get information from our own unit. We were getting it from other units, from other people that had, been, had heard it. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what's going on, you know, whether they recovered him or not or whatnot, but, um, talking to some other people and everything, there was an attempt made on April 1st to go get them. And that was the same thing that I think it, it coordinated with all military uh, rescues. So Jessica Lynch was there, things like that. And um, for some reason they didn't, they weren't able to re- retrieve them that day. I don't, I don't know what happened, um, but they didn't get them that day. And then, so was it four days later on April 5th, uh, Fox two, two went and got them. How, did you guys, how did you guys find out that he had been drugged through the city and hung mm-hmm. up on a cross? There was a, they, they had sent out a drone. So there was a drone that was set out that, that, I think it was that morning. And they went and they saw his vehicle and they went in where it was at and they, they like spotted what they believed was him being hung from a telephone pole mm. with a freaking, uh, like a guillotine or whatever they strap across his back. Fuck. Yeah, man. in his full mop gear. Like, they didn't, like, in his full mop. Like, he was still, he was still dressed. Oh. And, um, so I think after the first, something happened where the civilians or the citizens of that town were able to cut him down. And they went and they buried him out in a field, uh, which was a trash dump. Mm. And that's where Fox 2 2 recovered him was in a field in a trash dump on April 5th. And they picked him up, they, they got him, um, and then he, he got identified. And the Mexican was notified later on, I think on the 10th. Um, but it was just, it was just all rumor building mace, man. It was did that, did that, you said it was a lieutenant colonel that made a decision not to go in. Yeah. Did, did he? So the commanding officer of MWSS 371, which was the senior officer out there, made the call to not go back. And it was Lieutenant Colonel Cravens. 
Did he get in trouble? No. He got promoted and was given a silver star. Wow, man. And like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else, like, there was no accountability. There was no ever, it was like, oh, you don't talk about this anymore. Mm. You know, it's kind of like you talk about it, you're going to get in trouble or something, you know, things along, along those lines. Cause you're not going to sit there and, I mean, basically it boils down to you're calling your seal a coward. You know, running in the face of the enemy. So what, what it's do you just do? It's crazy to me that, that how is that even a decision to be made? Like one of our Marines is caught. It's the only decision is to go in and recover him. him. Right. That's fucking crazy. And the, and, and then now all the Marines involved in that incident. We hold, uh, yeah, we carry this with us. Oh. Uh, that's I mean, it's bullshit, man. Like, like what? I, I just don't understand. Like, how as an officer you would like, 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 you would go, okay, no man left behind. There's nothing more to discuss. Mm-hmm. It happens. We go take care of it. But they, but they just. It seemed like they watched the the, the commanding officers wash his hands clean of it and just moved on. And I could tell you this, it was a new CO too. We just got him, I think, in that December or November. So he'd only been with the unit for like two or three months. Because I can tell you this, Lieutenant Colonel Dana would have never let that shit happen. And he just retired as a lieutenant general. Mm. You know, um, it was, it was leadership. I mean, it just, it boils down to it was just leadership. And there was no reason why we couldn't go back. We outgunned them. Man, you guys are going through all this and you're a fucking, supply company you're yeah. you're you're, you're <laughs> that's wild right it's uh it's yeah yeah that's crazy so yeah so, yes we were the supply company and then after um you know one of the crazy things was too is that like uh after that night it, it had happened the next morning uh people are trying to ask you know trying to find out what the hell happened <clears throat> you know some people had heard about it some people hadn't and then colonel dowdy sent a uh motorcycle messenger to our oic lieutenant ordle and uh, Lieutenant Order went and briefed him on, on everything that would happen. The dude was like in disbelief. And so that's when he, you know, Dowdy called Mattis and was like, hey, we need to clear out these supply lines, these routes. And they'd already, I guess there was already some friction between Dowdy and Mattis anyways. They were already having some issues and Mattis relieved his ass. So it's like the, 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 the 06 that was trying to help the supply units gets relieved of duty. And it just, it just, a lot of things just didn't make sense. Like, honestly, looking at it from an outside, you know, looking in, I'm like, this is the Marine Corps? Mm-hmm. Like, what fucking universe or, or whatever does the Marine Corps leave a man behind? And then not even discuss it or talk about it. Wow, man. After you know, having gone through all that, you know, talk to me about what it was like for you transitioning back into the civilian world. Well, I got back to, I mean, it's just, it was, I mean, just to summarize it, it was such a shit deployment with a shit unit. I mean, our officer, one of our officers tried to kill one of our other officers because he was sleeping with his wife. I mean, that's as soon as we get back to to, to Kuwait in May, we're doing that. And it was like by that time in that unit, we were pretty much all sick of each other. Because we were all reminders, like not, not that we hated each other, but it was just that we were a reminder of what happened. Mm. 
And then everybody else who wasn't there was always talking about it. Got out in July of 05 and thought I wanted to be a cop and things like that. And was like, nah, I think I did enough of the military police. So then I started coaching football um, and working nights because uh, all my firefights took place at night. So at night, I'm a little bit more on guard. Mm. So it's a little bit more difficult for me to sleep at night. So yeah, I would, I would work uh, night jobs like security, things like that. And then I would coach football in the afternoons. So I go from football and everything like that. I really wasn't sleeping very much. You know, I was very on guard at night. You know, you'd hear a car pass by or a siren or a honk or something. And I'm, you know, ready to go. You know, I'm up. And so it was, you know, honestly, I, I mean, I was taking all kinds of sleeping pills, mm-hmm. you know, Tylenol PM, Advil PM, everything over the counter you could possibly think of just to get, you know, three, four hours of sleep a night and just to relax myself enough. And then the thing that sparked it the most was Generation Kill. And I, I never, I didn't watch it. I waited, you know, it came out on DVD and I bought it and I watched it. And then, you know, episode four, they come out and they talk about the recovery and the capture of, um, or the capture and recovery of Sergeant Padilla. That's when it started to hit that it wasn't a small deal. It was a pretty big fucking deal. And that it was the tip, you know, basically we were on the front line, the tip of the spear on that as a supply company. We we're the first fucking supply company to hold a front line of a U.S. major war ever. So, um, we, uh, or I'm sorry, as I got out and just looking back at things and realizing how it affected me, like, even though I tried to put it away or ignore it or whatever, it was, you know, living with the, the things that you go through and just the, the disappointment and the, the no man left behind and knowing that he was left there. Reports said that he was alive. And I started looking at that when he was captured and I started looking at that going, you know, it's, it started messing with my head a little bit. Like, you know, what's the Marine Corps if it's, you know, not going to honor its creed, right. you know, or who are you as any faction that doesn't do what you're going to say and honor it? You know, and so I, I, I try to distance myself from the Marine Corps and my service. I stopped talking about it. I stopped talking about it that I was in, you know, I put all my shit in a box and <clears throat> wow. people are surprised that, um, you know, when I tell them I was in the military, oh, what branch? Really? Yeah, they don't. They don't know. I mean, they just, they do not know. And I just it it just was just you don't do that. It's just so dishonorable leaving a man behind like that and having to live to live with it. And and granted, I was just a lance corporal. You know, the one thing I could have done is fucking hijacked a Humvee and you know went after it, but. You know, that's the thing that plays in my head over and over and over. Could have done more, could have done more, could have done more. How accurate was, was uh, Generation Kill in, uh, for that incident? It's pretty accurate from the rumor mill side of things. Um, it just confirmed everything that I'd already heard. Hmm. The only thing that I really didn't know was with that, that CIA guy coming in and saying that we're trying to catch this guy and that the Padilla rescue can go, you know, is off to the side. That's a secondary mission. And I'm just like... So we want to kill this general, and that's more important than rescuing a Marine. Mm. So it just it just showed me that we were we were all expendable, you know, and 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 that just because something's said doesn't mean it's it's gonna you know happen. It's like what if that had happened to me? If I had gotten captured, I'd be dead. I mean, like there was no one coming to get me, right? And the whole time I'm thinking someone's gonna come get me. Mm. 
So did you end up uh, ever going and getting help, like through the VA or anywhere? I tried through to the VA. I scheduled an appointment, and then they called me two years later. This was in 2012. Two years later? Yeah, they called me. I, I scheduled an appointment in 2010, and then two years later they called me, and I just went off on them. And they were sitting there telling me that, um, oh, well, we're here now, and we're here to help you now. And I went off on them. And then I just continued with life the way that I lived it, you know, isolating, not really going out a lot, and just sticking to myself, sticking to what I know. Um, I mean, they, you leave a man behind like that, and your CEO tells you not to go get him. That creates some fucking trust issues, man, mm. in your life. I bet. Because people tell you they're there for you and, you know, things like that. And you're just like, well... Are you fucking when I saw Dakota Meyer on Jocko Willing's podcast talking about his command telling him not to go get those Marines and that that Navy doc, that Navy corpsman? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Don't go get him. Then he, def- de- you know, defies orders and goes and get him. You know, so in 2003, the same shit, you know, happens and then the same shit's happening in 2009. Mm. It's like, when the fuck are we going to learn that? We go, we go get our guys, regardless of, of what it may result in. Is there anything that you do to try to mitigate that, uh, all the emotions that arise from? Try, yeah, honestly, <coughs> you, just try, you gotta have a good time, man. Mm. You just gotta go out and find shit to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, obviously it's always gonna be there, but it doesn't need to be at the forefront. Right. You know, it doesn't need to be on my mind 24 seven. You know, I can go out and function and do things and have a good life. Mm. You know, um, took me a while to get there though. Yeah. You know, survivor guilt and, and just not thinking that I deserved it. Like, you know, he didn't get to enjoy his life. Why should I get to enjoy mine? You know, and a lot of guys took that literally. Like, it just, I don't know, I don't know what to say about it, man. Cause it's number one, it's so fucking off the wall. Like, it, you don't hear about this, this stuff. No. And I'm surprised we still haven't heard about it. You know, it's just that these are the things that happen, you know. Uh, so that's fucking, that's a wild story, man. It's crazy to have to deal with that. And I couldn't imagine, you know, being in that unit at that specific time and having the fuck. Because uh, like you said, you know, you're a Lance Corporal. Uh, Been in the Marine Corps 18 months. And uh, yeah. you, you can't do shit about it. You got to yeah. follow fucking orders, you know. That's the most frustrating fucking thing ever, man. Wow. Yeah, and and <clears throat> following those orders is just it's it's definitely hurt a lot of people in that unit. Mm. And um, you know, I would I would like to see us get back together and try to create some sort of a support system for our unit, but it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. I would like it to, but um, yeah, like I said, a lot of us are reminders mm. of the shit show that was well we're getting ready to cut the tape brother okay. um any last words for marines that are on active duty right now don't let bitterness and shit affect how you lead mm. and i think that's that's one of the biggest things moving forward is don't be bitter and, 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 and let it affect the way that you lead your troops because they need you more and that's what this generation is this generation of marines is preparing the next generation for a war mm-hmm and that's that's what you know it's got to go and you got to get that knowledge from somewhere mm-hmm. and so i just hope that um you know moving forward that the marines can help each other more instead of fucking talking down or, or you know pick each other up 
Right. You know, hold, yes, hold each other accountable, but there's a way of doing that. So, yeah, let's move forward with it, man. Thanks for being here, Aaron. Right, appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you, sharing, man. brother. Appreciate it. Big contribution to Urban Valor. So, uh, very grateful. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Push it to the limit, I can't go no more. Red light, no way, I'm coming back home. Long dirt road all on my own. I'ma be the greatest, draw my name in the stone. Draw my name in the stone. Yeah, I'm coming back.